This is Lori LeBay, and I am the host and founder of Alzheimer's Speaks, and I welcome you today to our show. Um, Before we get started, we always have new listeners, so I always like to tell people a little bit about Alzheimer's Speaks, what we we do and why we do it. Um, Bottom line, we're an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. And we believe that by joining forces and sharing knowledge and having these everyday conversations like we do about life with dementia, we're able to remove stigmas attached to memory loss and help people live full lives. Um, And that is people both diagnosed and those caring for them. Together, we can help everybody understand the, the true needs and really, really live as well as possible. At our core, we believe that collaboration is the only way we're going to win this battle. And I know it's working because of each and every one of you. You see, your likes, your clicks, and your shares have had a tremendous impact on how far our um, our knowledge bases and platforms have, have been shared around the world. Those few seconds you take to click and share with your Facebook friends, your Twitter tribes, your um, Google clans, your LinkedIn colleagues, your Pinterest peeps um, has really made a big difference. You see, we were named the number one influencer online for Alzheimer's, according to ShareCare in Dr. Oz, and we never would have been able to do that alone. Um, and it's just so beneficial to, to spread information and knowledge in a non-threatening way to your sphere of influences because there are so many people out there that we don't even know are dealing with this. And the more information they can see, the more common they can see it, the easier it's going to be for them to reach out and grab it when they're ready. So I encourage you to um, continue um, to go ahead and share all of our platforms. Not only do we have the the um, radio show, but we have a platform called Dementia Chats where um, our panelists actually have dementia, and they share some just wonderful insights. Today we had a great conversation about pets, the pros and the cons, and what it's like when you have dementia to have a pet. Um, And I'll be editing that and and getting that out shortly. Um, We also have a blog. We have a resource directory. We have another um, interview platform called Conscious Caring Resources, which our last one, we just interviewed Norms McNamara over in the U.K., who started the Purple Angel Project. So, um, you know, we have plenty to share, and we would love for you to to help us with that. Um, I also want to uh, just give a shout-out. Uh, if you're going to be in Indiana, I'm going to be in Fort Wayne on October 19th and Mer- Merrillville on the 20th. Um, we're going to be doing a caregiver symposium for the Alzheimer's Association, and I would absolutely love to meet you if you're in the area. Um, you can just go to our website at uh, com, and you'll see the information. You can click and, and uh, register for that. 
um, if that's of interest to you. Um, today, we are lucky enough to have Susan uh, Suchan with us, who is living with dementia, and she is going to be um, my co-host today. So welcome, Susan. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, do you want to tell people just a little background about yourself? Yeah, I am um, a mother of two, a grandmother of five. I uh, was diagnosed um, with early onset Alzheimer about 10, 12 years ago. I'm not sure of the time. I uh, was four, eight years old. About three plus years ago, was um, diagnosed with uh, FTD or frontal temporal degeneration and primary progressive aphasia. I currently live with my sister and brother-in-law and um, do advocating work to bring awareness and help to break the stigma around early onset dementia. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, I'm just always excited to have you with us. So thank you so much for uh, sharing your your um, expertise and insights as to what it's really like living with this disease. And today, uh, our guest today is Rachel Wonderland, who has her master's degree in gerontology and has worked with several senior living companies throughout the country as a dementia care director and she also has a blog called Dementia by Day, which really inspired her to write her book, which is called When Someone You Know is Living in a Dementia Care Community. And it was recently published by John Hopkins University Press. So welcome, Rachel. Hi, thanks. Can you tell our audience um, to start, we always like to know, um, has have you or anyone in your family or circle of friends been touched with dementia at all? Actually, not really. I don't have anyone in my family who was diagnosed with dementia. Uh, when I was in high school, I started volunteering at a local skilled nursing facility, and I really got to know a lot of the residents there, and I really got to, I really enjoyed working with older adults. And as I learned more about gerontology, I also subsequently learned more about dementia. And uh, after an internship with the University of Pennsylvania, hospital, I knew that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to work with dementia care uh, specifically. Okay, great. Now, you started your blog first, um, which is called Dementia by Day. What what, mm-hmm. what got you to start that process? Because that's always, I find, very fascinating why people got involved to begin with. Right. Um, when I started my first job out of graduate school with Brookdale Senior Living, I realized I had all these really interesting, really cool stories to tell about the residents that I met there. And I got so close with so many of those people. So it was a great way to be able to write down those stories, tell them and share them with other people, because I think that there's a lot of great information out there for people who uh, are taking care of somebody at home, or it's just kind of interesting to see it from a perspective of people who actually are living in a long-term care community. And the friendships that these people have with each other. Wonderful. Um, now, what got you started? To, you know, working in a long term. Out of all the jobs that you could pick from, what what drew you in? Um, 
I think I, I always wanted to work specifically in dementia care. And then a friend of a friend kind of set me up with a woman who I was talking to on the phone about Brookdale senior living specifically. And where I was living at the time in North Carolina, a job opened as the memory care program manager at this community that belonged to Brookdale. And I thought, wow, okay, this could be a really cool opportunity for me. And I started the job and I just loved it. Loved it. Okay, great. Um, can you tell us a, a little bit about um, your book? What, you know, what made you focus on living communities? Um, did you mm-hmm. feel that there was a gap there? Yeah, I really, I really felt like there was not enough information for someone who was thinking about moving into a long-term care community or thinking about moving a loved one into a long-term care community. There's a lot of great information about home care, but, you know, making that decision to move somebody into long-term care is hard enough, and especially so when there's really not answers for the questions that I was getting. Mm-hmm. So can you give us a, an idea of some of the questions that, that you were getting? Because I know this is something that that mm-hmm. uh, Susan is kind of thinking about in, in mm-hmm. you know, trying, you know, trying to weigh things out. So what kind of, what were some common questions that you got? A lot of people would ask me what to do in terms of, you know, the first step to moving somebody into long-term care. What were some good reasons to move to long-term care versus staying at home? And then also if they did decide to move, what to do once they got there, especially from a family member perspective of, you know, how often should I visit um, is there is there a time limit that I should stay there, or are there rules about visiting? And just kind of kind of that kind of thing, like how do I leave for the day? How do I uh, make this huge transition in my life, and how do I make it not so challenging? So when you're when you're talking about focus, are you talking primarily about caregiver questions, or are you talking about people that actually have dementia? You know, like like. Um, Susan is is very capable of you know still being involved in the decision making process. Mm-hmm. Where where were you focusing? Uh, from families, from uh, family caregivers' perspective, answering their questions. Um, for the most part, people who live in long term care communities, especially in like a memory care section, um, have trouble sometimes with some of those tougher decisions. So a lot of times the bigger decisions come from the family. Okay. So um, do you encourage um, family members to have this discussion earlier on with their loved one to, to kind of be prepared and, and try to come up with a plan? Absolutely. I think having a plan and having open discussion is an excellent way to start. Um, I, I think a lot of people with their families go a little bit too long and they wait to the last minute. And so many times I encountered families who were really upset because they would say, well, you know, my, my loved one didn't want to ever move out of the house. And now I feel like I'm doing it against their will. And, you know, I wish that we had just, we had talked about this mm-hmm. sooner. And so, yeah, absolutely. I think talking about it, having an open dialogue is super important. Okay. Um, I'm going to throw a question to, to Susan. What are some of the things that you're struggling with right now in terms of, 
do I move or don't I move? Because right now, and give people a little background maybe of, of why this is popping up for you, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, we do. I agree wholeheartedly um, in relationship to the open dialogue. And it's something I've been very fortunate to um uh, I live in a home where um, we all talk a lot, <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, but it keeps that line of communication as the disease process evolves. What um, perceptions um, myself and those um, uh, I live with uh, are have turned to be complete different than originally anticipated. So once you get a diagnosis and you're given very little information about the actual disease process outside of getting your affairs in order, um, then you're kind of on your own to navigate and each person's experience will be unique to them. That being said, having the opportunity to um, watch this evolve and be blessed to articulate that to my family, but uh, realistically recognizing that at some point that may become more challenged to me. Um, but they know where I'm coming from. So those decisions, hopefully in the future, um, will be based on who I am and them knowing what my wishes have always been, um, along with the practicality of things. Um, My family uh, bought a beautiful home for me to live here with them. Uh, and I and 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 we laugh about it, um, and it's not really funny. But uh, at that time, they had this preconceived idea that somehow I was going to be diagnosed, and um, from there I was going to need to be spoon-fed and bathed, and there should be no stairs, and we should, as if I was already end-stage dementia. And what we've all realized is there's a whole bunch of life between the beginning and and end stage. So um, people, um, not only are they very disrupted by the diagnosis itself, but then as it evolves and it's not what they've ever been told or what they have mindset, it's very, um, I would have to say for personal, uh, is family, is, for lack of a better word, it's boring. Um, it's repetitive and it's uh, frightening because you don't know in a month or in a year or now you've opened up the prospect that this isn't a, a B, C, D, and done. It is a process, and each process will take its own time. So I found that I really watched them 
panic and I am the problem solver to the best of my ability. That being said, they are ready to move on with their lives and have considered um, moving, which leaves me with going, hmm, where is the best place for a person such as self to um, to reside? I don't believe I'm ready for um, a long-term care home. I'm very independent and quite capable. Um, and what I'm finding is that there are very few options other than um, what we as a society have always known. You get a diagnosis, you stay at home as long as possible, and then you're institutionalized. Um, I'm really curious to see for those in between that area, um, what are options for independent living um, with maybe some assistance on the side as the disease progresses? Um, And I don't see many models of that. I don't know if that's even practical to uh, contemplate. but I know there's a lot of us out there that tend to fall through cracks because of the lack of that gray area, so to speak, if that makes sense. Rachel, is that something that you've seen as well? Yeah, I think that's definitely a concern. Um, just listening to what you're talking about, I'd recommend maybe, I think there are two decent options here. I mean, for one, it definitely does not, you're right, it does not sound like you want to move into a long-term care environment right now. Um, no. What I would recommend is, yeah, knowing, a, like, maybe learning a little bit more about home care, maybe just having somebody stop by and assist you if you feel like you need it. And then mm-hmm. at some point, looking into a what's called a CCRC, which is like a continuing care retirement community. And CCRCs are kind of cool because, there's different levels of care. So it's a place that would offer, and there's a bunch of CCRCs, places that would offer independent living, assisted living, uh, memory care, skilled nursing, all those kinds of levels so that if you moved into one environment and you found that your needs changed, you could move very easily within the same community into another level of need. So mm-hmm. that that's probably a pretty good option uh, to look into at some point. But, I mean, at this point, it really just sounds like maybe keeping somebody in mind for a home care visit every so often would, would probably help you, you know, when you needed it. Well, but, right. but if her family moves, then you're looking at needing a whole place right. to stay on top of that um, as well as kind of that check-in system. And so I think that's, you know, adds to the gap. Um, It is a big gap. Um, And uh, when you're um, at an age when to look at me and number wise, I should be fully employed. Um, But that is not possible. Um, And so a lot of the having home health come to um, help with 
me prepare meals or to personal hygiene or, or help with meds um, makes perfect sense to me. And I'm not too big to ask, so that really makes a lot of logical sense. Um, finding housing um, when you're unemployed and so there is limited income. Um, we see what a strain that can put on just one single family. As a society, I don't think we know what to do with that. Um, at least in my part of the woods, there's um, really there are no options uh, outside of um, low-income housing which most oftentimes are in undesirable or unsafe uh, locations. And a person with any kind of disability would be labeled a uh, target. Um, I mean, these are just realities for um, navigating independent living with a disability, much less dementia. Um, so being able to learn and then offer to the community um, alternatives, safe, wise, affordable, um, for that really could be a very long interment of life that some assistance is needed without a lot of hands-on care is really, really important to a lot of people with an early dementia diagnosis. Yeah, it's a it's a tough one, and it's we're kind of in a pickle um, in terms of, mm. of having answers and stuff. But maybe somebody listening is you know will be able to take this uh, particular topic and do something with it and and target this population because it definitely is a a need. And I think the conversation to have earlier on is a is a real helpful one. Um, Rachel, let's go on to, you know, talking about your book and, and what people can find um, of help for, and, and at, my understanding is your book is primarily for care partners who need to now mm-hmm. make this decision um, because their their person has declined. And um, most of the time at that juncture, a lot of people just haven't had this conversation prior. So again, we really encourage people to have conversations sooner than later about this because they may be really surprised what the person with dementia's wishes really are. Um, because mm-hmm. what I have found is so many of them are very realistic, you know, and they don't want to be a burden and they they don't want to be um, a stressor. <clears throat> like again, they don't want to move, but. Uh, you know, they, they're able to still prioritize. And if you can have that conversation, at least it can alleviate, I think, some burden and stress on both sides. Would would you say that that's accurate, Susan? Yes, definitely. Okay. So, so Rachel, in your book, what can, what can people find um, if they, if they purchase your book when someone, you know, mm-hmm. is living in dementia, a dementia care community? I think, I hope what they'll find, and uh, people who have kind of read it so far have told me <laughs> this, this is true, um, answers to the questions that they've had and maybe even some questions that they didn't know that they had. Essentially, each chapter is an answer to a question I've been asked at some point, either working in long-term care or just 
hearing from caregivers uh, from my blog or just wherever wherever I'm meeting people. Um, um, so each chapter is really filled with one one or two stories of things I've experienced working with people with dementia, and then also some facts and some evidence-based things that people can use to uh, hopefully make the decision to either move or not move into long-term care, and then if they do choose to do so, um, to make that transition easier for them. Okay. Can you give us some examples of um, of your chapter titles and, and maybe mm-hmm. give us some ideas of, of you know, uh, maybe a couple of stories relating to that so that people will have a better idea of, of what to expect and the types of questions? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, my first chapter is actually just called, What is Long-Term Care? And I think that's a pretty good question to have answered in this book because a lot of people have no idea really what long-term care is and what encompasses, you know, what goes into long-term care, um, what types of care are available. I think one of the other important chapters that I have is when it's time for a dementia care community and when it's not, because that is a huge thing when people are trying to decide if they want to move in, move themselves or move a loved one into a dementia care community specifically what are the signs you need to be looking for? What kinds of people live in dementia care? What kinds of needs uh, emotionally and physically do those people ha- do those people have? Um, each, so each you know each chapter has a story or two, and um, in that chapter specifically, I talk about a woman I met who lived in assisted living, so she did not live in dementia care. But what was happening? was that she was starting to withdraw socially a little bit because she was having more and more trouble communicating with the other people who lived in her hallway. Mm -hmm. And she was having more and more trouble um, handling daily tasks. And so I recommended to our community and to the family that maybe she come over and she try our memory care, our dementia care community for a little bit. And almost immediately, the change in her was evident. She became more social. Um, I saw her smiling a lot more. She really kind of got a group of friends. And I think it's because she was able to find her needs were met much better in the dementia care side than they were being met in the assisted living side. And I think she was doing very well in assisted living before that. But as her needs became more and more related to dementia, making that move was a really positive step for her and for her family. Wow. Um, Any comments on that, Susan? I think she makes a really valid point, Rachel, in that um, recognizing that, um, and I feel it, um, going from being completely independent to recognizing where um, some help would facilitate for more quality life and being very honest about that, even to the point of saying, I may not recognize the need. It takes time process. There may be something not right. But I uh, hope those that are around me who know and love me 
if I'm not getting it and I seem withdrawn or anxious, that they would um, help me process so we can make those choices that actually facilitate that quality to know that mm-hmm. something I'm trying desperately to um, figure out. Um, I know something's not right, but I may not know that exactly for some period of time. So in the interim, I'm not presenting as um, happy or sociable. Mm-hmm. Once mm-hmm. that need is met, the uh, real me is able to um, present because the problem is gone. And being very honest about that, as much as all of us want to think we can, um, you know, hold the world up, <laughs> there is actually a time and place where um, if we are very real, the help that can facilitate us be who real are is um, it's magnificent um, and you focus so much on how more functional you feel than what someone's doing for you. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. <clears throat> can you, um, Rachel, can you talk uh, maybe about a, a couple other chapters in the book in terms of, um, again, some of the common questions? Cause I think sometimes people are afraid to talk cause they just think, Oh, this is a dumb mm-hmm. question or I should know, or I don't even know that this is a question you know, <laughs> I don't know where to go to find an right. answer. And so, I mean, this is a complicated thing on on many levels because it's not just physical need, but it's emotional, psychological. Um, you know, there's just so many different levels. Um, a move like this has um, has impact on not only um, the person with dementia, but the the ones who care for them, not only family, but then um, the professional staff as well. And the need for open communication, how critical that is um, for things to go as smooth as possible. Right. So one of the chapters that I have is called uh, Sex and Partnership in a Dementia Community. And I actually think that's a really important chapter to have. And a lot of this becomes a problem a lot of times in dementia care communities because people don't ever want to talk about it. But what I find a lot, I mean, you, you know, we're all still humans. So when you get into a group of other people, like-minded people, sometimes relationships develop. And a lot of times you'll have family members become very uncomfortable if their loved ones with dementia or, frankly, um, without dementia, get into relationships with other people in their care community environment. So I talk a little bit about that. And then I also have another chapter about friendship and people with dementia. And I think that kind of gets taken for granted. I I think a lot of times um, sometimes family members will move people into long-term care and and just maybe write off the fact, oh, well, you know, mom has trouble with her memory. She's not going to be able to remember that she has friends here. And that's completely not true. And I've seen some really beautiful friendships and relationships develop between people with dementia. And I think one of my favorite stories that I tell in this book is 
about uh, two residents that I had, two of my favorite residents, who were roommates. And they developed a really wonderful friendship with each other and came to really rely on each other for emotional and physical cues um, when it was time to get ready for meals or what activity was happening next or whatever, where everyone was going, what everyone was doing that day. And they really relied on each other for that. And I, I found, and eventually actually one of those women uh, moved to another community where her family came and moved her to a different community. And uh, I saw this other woman who was left decline very quickly. And I think, again, you know, people write off this idea that, oh, well, so-and-so has a memory, you know, related issue, and they might not remember remember that they have friends. And that's just, that's so untrue, you know, because these relationships really are very powerful. Oh, definitely. I remember when my mom was in the nursing home, um, she developed really strong relationships. Um, and she was in there for 14 years. And she had mm-hmm. um, magnificent relationships with staff and with residents. And they, you know, the, the residents cared for one another. Um, you know, there was always somebody who was one step ahead of her and somebody who was one step behind her. And those ahead of her would watch over her and and make sure everything was okay. And my mom would do that for somebody else who was, you know, less less abilities than she had. And it was really, um, I mean, it just kind of warmed your heart. And it was something that I, um, even though I was in senior housing, I didn't really realize that true impact until I saw my mom um, in the mm-hmm. thick of it and the benefits for her to be able to socialize, you know, because the, the goal for for us as a family was she was always going to stay home with us. And we thought that that would protect her and be the best for her. Um, and yet, uh, I'll still, and I've, I've said this probably a zillion times um, over the six years we've been doing the radio show, but I'll never forget the day I walked in um, and saw my mom participating in a real simple activity where they were just sitting in a horseshoe and the activities person was in the middle. And she just had like an Oprah magazine up that just had this beautiful picture of gardens and they were all just reminiscing and they were just having so much fun. And I just thought, you know, as a family, we just wouldn't even know to do that. And Mm -hmm. how, how important all our friendships are. You know, if you're a child, if you're an adult, if you're a teenager, you know, if you're ill or not, our friendships are, are a part of us, you know, and they're, they're part of our community and to lose that, um, by becoming shut in. And sometimes that happens. I think when, when someone lives with a family, um, you know, people don't come over and they don't go out as much and the world becomes really small. And I know, Susan, you're still very active and, um, you know, especially on social media, but you still get out and about as well. But have, have you felt the size of your world change? Oh, definitely. Um, the world continues to move and dementia kind of slows things down. People are still going to their jobs. Uh, They're raising their families. They're aspiring to vacations. And um, oftentimes uh, that uh, 
excludes those visits over to someone who is homebound. Um, I'm very fortunate to have a handful of friends and the work I do with advocating that I have um, not only created a community or join, I did not create, I have joined community of peers who understand and um, that's very, very important um, when the world we were once familiar with changes so much for us, not them. They're just living their lives as they should. Um, but there are moments when you think it, the world is such a fast place. Um, so having that support, the, the, that peer support, uh, for one another, not only brings purpose to my life, but it can bring purpose to others' lives as well. I think it's very important. Okay. Um, Rachel, in terms of families, I would imagine one of the number one struggles for them is, what you had mentioned earlier, that, that level of guilt in terms of mm-hmm. making a placement or the conflict within a family. Um, because not everybody's always on the same page, or that's what I have found. Is is that what you have found as well, that there can be some friction that comes up um, not only between the person with dementia and the family, but just the family dynamics as a whole of what is the right decision? Oh, absolutely. Families feel horribly guilty, and I think a lot of that's attributed to what we talked about earlier, um, which is not having that open dialogue, you know, not really talking about, well, what do we do if, or, you know, what, what, yeah, what do we do if, what do we do when? And actually one of the things that I recommend people do is to fill out what's called a five wishes. Mm -hmm. And it is a, um, it essentially takes the place of a living will. It's valid in most states. You can get a copy online and it's not just about, um, what you'd want in terms of death, but a lot of it's what you would want for your life. Um, what happens to you when, what happens to you if, so that it's written down and that people know what you actually want. And uh, I think that's really, really important. Or even even recording, and I have, I've done this too, recording my personal preferences on different things. So writing down things you know about yourself to be true that no one else really knows. For example, I sleep laying on my left side and I like to sleep holding a pillow. Um, Most people would not know that about me. So I think it's important to write those kinds of things down. So if you do get to a point where maybe you need to move into a care community or you have a big life change, someone who's helping you care for yourself knows these important little things that make you, you. Mm-hmm. Which which makes a lot of sense. And we all have these little quirky things, you know, and, mm-hmm. and it might be things that you like to eat or don't like to eat, the time you like to wake up, how often you want to take a shower or be bathed, um, what your process is for that, um, color preferences. I mean, the, the lists can go on and on and on and on. 
um, with this. That And the more we can communicate those things, um, you know, hopefully the better we'll be able to care for you and meet your wishes. And, um, you know, and I think it's some of those things we just take for granted. We assume other people know those things about us or, you know, because they've been around us so long. But, you know, the sad part is, is we really don't pay that much attention to other people as much as we should. <laughs> right. And, um, you know, and it's critical, um, it, especially and and. um you know, Rachel, I'll ask you this too. Do you find that still so many families are, are waiting for somebody to, with dementia to verbalize their needs to them when they just can't process or speak oh, yeah. anymore? And it's just like that's gone now. You know, you need to rely on your nonverbal communication, which is more than 75% of our communication anyways. But people just think when somebody can't speak the way they used to, that it's it's over with, you know? And it's like, no, that's just a small fraction of how we communicate. Absolutely. I have also a chapter on uh, aphasia, mm-hmm. so people who lose the ability to speak. And of course, not everyone with dementia does do that. But what I've come to you know, understand is that actually people with aphasia are almost more um, physical, you know, with their bodies. They, they gesture, they still, they interact as if they're speaking, even though they're not speaking. And you get family members who will say, oh, well, I'm not going to go visit dad anymore because he doesn't, he can't talk to me, you know, so he doesn't know that I'm there. And what I always say is, no, 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 please keep going. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not that he doesn't just because he can't verbalize, oh, how are you doing today, doesn't mean that he does not appreciate and value your presence mm-hmm. in his life and, you know, and that you're coming to see him. That's not gone, <laughs> you know. So absolutely, people are definitely, a lot of people wait for that kind of cue from that person and and, and they don't know what to do when they can't get it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Now, um, Susan, do you want to talk a little bit about aphasia? Yeah, um, I think make perfect point. Um, uh, the loss of words um, can be compensated with um, body language. Um, it doesn't always come out right, just like the words not go come out all right. But it with uh, some patience. Um, both sides of the conversation, it can, it can continue. Um, uh, we in family, my talk often about and laugh, we laugh about it um, because it's, um, you could get depressed if you didn't. Uh, right. We um, we find ways to compensate. Um, we have openly discussed um, when is it all right for someone still in the gap where I cannot find word um, that is out of respect. Um, most people not know aphasia will not realize take time. Um, just go slow, um, and that goes for not only speak, but to interpret the language. Um, 
for quite some time, there was some confusion in-house. We quit watching television as a group. And this was, um, I, I, I could not articulate this to them. So it just was something that was happening. And when I started to notice the concern, uh, this change they considered was just isolate. And I had to really find a way to be able to explain to them that, A, they turned the TV on too loud. And when it's loud, I cannot process what is being said on the television. Um, so now we watch our own separate shows in separate rooms um, without a hurt feeling so that um, their needs are being met by watching television to a volume they can hear. And I can to be able to understand and no one is stuck thinking someone's mad or I'm digressing or (laughs) it's just what it is. It is part of the process and take the fear or worry out and clarify just like we would with speech. It sometimes just comes out in our actions. So I think, um, it's an obstacle, but it's not unsurmountable. Mm-hmm. Rachel, anything you'd like to add? Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think it's, you know, it's so interesting that your family decided to go, oh, okay, well, I guess we'll watch TV, you know, in separate bases instead of thinking, oh, well, maybe we just need to adjust slightly what we're, what we're doing. I think, it's, and I'm so glad it, you know, it got to the point where you could just adjust what you were doing slightly so everyone could be happy. Um, a lot of times, I think people take things away from people with dementia because they just say, oh, well, you know, this person can't do X, Y, and Z anymore. And so they take X, Y, and Z away. And mm-hmm. a lot of times that person with dementia can absolutely do X, Y, and Z, and they might just need X, Y, and Z to be modified slightly. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. And it's a learning curve, I think, um, for everyone that's involved in that process. Um, and there's not a uh, time frame. Uh, so it's sometimes unnerving or inconvenient at times for everyone involved. But that is the part that is so mysterious about the disease is it's just ever evolving. So you kind of have to just keep tweak things as go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ain't that the truth, you know, when it comes to dementia? <laughs> Flexibility and spontaneity, um, boy, it, big life lessons there, you know, um, especially for me who was kind of a control freak. Um, didn't realize, um, didn't realize I was, thought it was organized, you know, (laughs) but, um, it really kind of puts things in perspective of how important it is to, to be aware and go with the flow and, and let those stressors, uh, just take a hike. 
um, because it's not it's not worth it for for anyone. Um, Rachel, is there a a, like a short um, story that you'd like to share with us um, regarding your book? Hmm. Let's see. Um, I'm trying to think of one of my one of my stories that I want to tell. I guess my favorite story really is um, working with this woman that I used to help with before I actually started working in a long-term care community. And she had dementia and she lived at home and her family would go in and um, look after her. And that's really when I first learned this idea of getting into someone's world, you know, and, and agreeing and having a conversation with this woman who did not necessarily live in, you know, my world anymore. For example, I went over to her house one day and um, she said to me, yes, guess who was here today? I said, I don't know who, who came, who came here today. And she pointed at the TV and it was president Obama on TV. Mm-hmm. And I said, Oh, he was here today. And she said, yep, yep. He was here. We talked and we talked about politics and, and, you know, she had this whole, this whole story. And instead of saying, Oh, well, that doesn't make any sense. You know, how could the president be here? I just agreed. And we ended up having this really awesome conversation um, for the rest of the day about this experience she had had. Of course, she had not really had that experience, but I think it was my first introduction truly into this world of, oh, wow, it's so much easier to build a relationship, not only with somebody with dementia, but just people in general, if you're open to understanding where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. Very true. Very, very true on that. Well, this has just been a, a really fascinating conversation. Um I wanted to ask too. Um, you went through John Hopkins, you know, University mm-hmm. Press. Why did you choose them? Oh, there's a lot of listeners out here that are wondering, you know, how how do I write a book? Where do I go? Right. Um, you know, I got a story to tell. I, I'm one of those. I still haven't done it. I've got lots of stories to tell. One of these days, I'll get to it. Um, but you know, how did you how did you pick, um, you know, John Hopkins University Press to to take on your book? Or did they pick you? Um, they kind of picked me slash I picked them. So so I'll tell you what I actually did. I actually got a one of those for dummies books, and it's called Getting Your Book Published for Dummies. And I read it cover to cover, and, uh, and I thought, okay, that's what I'm going to do. So I wrote a book proposal, and it included a couple of chapters from this book that was at the moment, you know, at the time unnamed. And I sent my book proposal around to different companies, different publishers that had published books about dementia. So I really quite literally went on Amazon, typed in dementia, went into books and scrolled through and wrote down all of the publishers, all the major publishers that I saw. And then I went to those publishers' websites and look to see if they were accepting new potential authors. And uh, Johns Hopkins was one of them. Um, there were a couple others, including Yale and uh, Harvard, um, Purdue, and a number of other presses. So I sent my book around, I sent my proposal around, and uh, a couple got back to me and said, oh, okay, we're interested. And Johns Hopkins 
published the 36-hour day, mm-hmm. which is arguably the most well-read book on dementia. And they got back to me, and they were very enthusiastic about the prospect of working with me. And I was immediately enthusiastic about working with them. And uh, they said, send us some more chapters. So I wrote some more chapters and sent them over. And over the course of about six months, we had a, a dialogue going on. And um, eventually they said, okay, well, you know, we'd like to we'd like to work with you. And so I was really excited to to have that opportunity. So very grateful to Johns Hopkins for, you know, picking up a new, <laughs> picking up a new uh, previously unpublished author. So that's oh, great. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. yeah. I, for myself, I've got one, one that's all ready to go and a, another one that'll be uh, much more lengthy, but it's just with all the different mediums I have going, I just haven't gotten around to finishing it. And I keep kicking myself mm-hmm. in the butt, but you know, it's a lot of work and a lot of people don't understand oh, yeah. how much work it is to write a book. Um, you know, so one of these days I'll, I'll get mine done too. And, you know, 30 years with my mom and then, you know, since she's passed even longer. So, um, lots of stories to tell. And, um, I mean, I'm excited about, uh, about your book. I wanted to ask you one last question. You, you had mentioned about mm-hmm. long-term care. Do you get into long-term insurance at all? Because one of the problems, you know, so many people say is, you know, how the heck do I pay for this thing? And, um, you know, do you, do you get into the financial side at all in terms of, of families? Don't. I okay. don't. I completely stayed away from it, honestly. And um, so, and interestingly, I I've had a couple um, places, different places, read my book. And one of the reviews I read of my book um, was really positive, overwhelmingly positive, except for one piece where they said, "Well, you know, Rachel didn't mention anything about um, like support groups or anything about financial information." But I did that specifically because I didn't want to um, put myself into like a, a box mm-hmm. um, because it's so different in different states and different countries. And I wanted my book to be able to be read by pretty much anybody anywhere and have it still at least in part be really accessible and really informative. So I totally stayed away from any financial anything. <laughs> and, and also that's not my area of expertise. So I would, <laughs> was nervous to even, to really even get into it. Yeah, no, I, I totally, totally can understand that because it is, it is a whole different mix um, in terms mm-hmm. of, of, in terms of what it is you're, you're dealing with and stuff. But I just thought I would ask that question. What mm-hmm. is, what is the best way for people to get a hold of you, Rachel, and, um, and get a hold of your book? Well, uh, Dementia by Day is my blog, and my email is right on there. It's very simple. It's rachelwonderland at gmail.com. Just got to make sure you spell it right. My name, my name is not short. Um, the book you can get on Amazon or uh, Johns Hopkins' website or Barnes & Noble. It will be officially out in stores, including Barnes & Noble, on November 1st. And until then, it's available for pre-order Although if you order it on Amazon, you'll get it in like two days, you know, and uh, it's actually discounted right now. So now is a good time. Anytime before November 1st is probably a good time to, to get it. Save yourself some, save yourself like 10 bucks. Okay. Wonderful. Um, Any, any last comments from you, Susan? I'd like to thank Rachel for um, 
talking about these topics that need to be talked about. I um, think it's really uh, inspiring to hear those who have the knowledge you have share that with others and encourage others to have this dialogue so that um, these changes in life can be made as comfortably as possible with all the knowledge they'll need to know before they venture that way. Thank you, Rachel. Wonderful. You're welcome. Well, thank you so much, uh, both of you, for being with us today. Again, we've been talking with Rachel Wonderland, who is the author of When Someone You Know Is Living in a Dementia Care Community, um, answers a lot of questions that families have about, you know, timing and picking the right um, place and um, highly encourage you to to go ahead and check that out. And of course, we were so lucky to have as our co-host today, uh, Susan Suchan, who is living with dementia and is just a charmer um, and always filled yeah. with, with great insight. So thank you both. Um, before we uh, go off today, I just want to do a couple of uh, highlights for people. Um, if you haven't checked our last radio shows, we did do one on dementia and coconut oil. What's all the buzz? We talked about uh, dementia and Reiki. Um, we talked about driving change in dementia. One gal is really pushing for license plates uh, to be able to raise money and, and awareness. Um, and then we had the author of uh, Dealing with Dementia, Motherhood Lost and Found uh, with Ann Campanella, which was just a really a wonderful show. I also wanted to mention that our uh, last dementia chats that was posted, we talked about the Alzheimer's walk. And with that, some of the pros and cons, and we've got some great topics coming out for you. Um, and one we talked about today was about pets and the the benefits and, um, and you know, some added stress that can uh, be caused by pets as well for families to, to really uh, discuss. Um, our last uh, Conscious Caring uh, Resource interview, which is a, a web-based interview, was with Norms McNamara over in the U.K. Uh, Norms is the founder of the Purple Angel Project that is all over the world, which is uh, pretty phenomenal. And if you are interested in seeing a preview of the film on dementia, which is a Hollywood-based film called His Neighbor Phil, I will be screening that October 30th at Hopkins High School. Um, um, at 2 o'clock, I'll be down in Memphis, uh, Tennessee, on November 10th, and then back up here in, in Minnesota, November 16th at St. Therese in Woodbury. We also had um, a great article posted to the blog by Carol Larkin, um, who she just writes some wonderful things. And she's talking about should someone with dementia drive? And then Michael Ellenbogen, who is also living with dementia, was talking about driving change in dementia via Congress. And uh, he was lucky enough to speak before them uh, once again. If you are not familiar with Alive and Social, which is our network here, uh, one of my cohorts here, I would love you to check out their show. Rachel Perrin is the culinary director for Kowalski's Markets, along with her producer and sidekick, Adam Lee. And they are joined by their foodtastic friends and colleagues to chat, uh, chat about seasonal foods, 
um, favorite flavors, trending topics in nutrition, and all that's yummy for your tummy. Uh, their segment is called What's for Dinner Tonight, and their podcast is only about 10 to 15 minutes long, um, but it's perfect for those busy families and hungry listeners who want a little assistance in making uh, dinner plans. You can also go to kowalskis.com for a complete menu list. So until next time, um, you know, have a blessed week. We'll talk to you soon. Bye now. It's time to rethink, renew, and reimagine retirement. Hey, everybody. Jared Sebesta here, host of Retire Repurposed. Now, this podcast is about the non-financial parts of retirement, which many times can be even more challenging than the financial. We believe retirement is not the end, rather the beginning of what can be the most impactful, purposeful, and fulfilling season of a person's life. So don't retire. Become repurposed. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.